21, 1 through 14. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you, and how shall I make atonement, that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house, neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, What do I say? What do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us, so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us, so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan and the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni and Meshibotheth, and his five sons, Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, and the Mahalatite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest, at the beginning of the barley harvest. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it out for herself on the rock, from the beginning of the harvest until the rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day, or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told that Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jebesh Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them, and on the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin in Zelah, in the tomb of Kish, his father. And they did all the king commanded, and after that God responded to the plea for the land. Father, once more, we we come before you, having read your word, and are now asking that you give us understanding. This passage today is not a pretty one. It is not a happy one. And it will take our focus to come to some understanding, Lord, by your Spirit. Grant us wisdom, grant us understanding, grant us hearing and seeing where we have been deaf and blind. Thank you for your word, even though sometimes it is incredibly challenging. 
Well, before we dive into this very difficult passage, I'm going to zoom out because we need to remember the larger themes going on in 2 Samuel. I mentioned it some weeks ago, chapters 9 through 20 in 2 Samuel deal with the court of David, what's going on inside David's inner circle and an exploration of those royal movers and shakers, their triumphs, and more often than not, their failures. But when we come to chapter 21, that section is passed, and we move into the very last section of 2 Samuel. The last four chapters of 2 Samuel are widely considered to be the epilogue of both 1st and 2nd Samuel, of the Samuels. So if you're going to understand the point of the epilogue, then there are two things you need to understand first. One, the events within the epilogue are not chronological. They are, not, they are arranged thematically rather than chronologically. And so chapter 21 does not follow chronologically after chapter 20. You'll see what I mean when we begin to dive into the passage. The second thing you need to know is that the epilogue is arranged in a chiastic structure, which you will see behind me. So you have these two parts, the outside parts of this chiastic structure, the outside layers that both relate unflattering stories of David. In the first one, there's an ignorance of God's will, there's famine. In the last one, there's a disobedience to God's will, and there's plague. Moving inward, you have lists related to or about David's mighty men, and then in the center of that chiastic structure are these two songs. And so whenever you see a chiastic structure like this, there's a larger theme going on that's governing all of the smaller parts in the same way that the parts of a car with their individual purposes serve the larger purpose of making the car move. So the larger purpose of the epilogue, as revealed through that chiastic structure, is that the will of God must be understood and obeyed. The will of God must be understood and obeyed, and you're going to hear that ringing clear in today's passage. On the outer layers of that chiastic structure, God is either not known or he is not obeyed, and disaster ensues. In the central layers of the chiastic structure, where there are those songs, David is most united to the will of God, and worship ensues. The whole chiastic structure of this epilogue is meaning to communicate to us who are the readers, it is essential for you to know and obey the will of God, which I believe is a very fitting way to conclude 1st and 2nd Samuel because obedience to God's will, knowing God's will, is what makes or breaks the players within the narrative. So that's the zoomed out view of what's going on in this last section of the Samuels. Today, as we look at chapter 21 of 2 Samuel, <clears throat> first thing I want to do is set some historical and theological context. We need it, or this passage is going to make absolutely no sense to us. Second thing I want to do is show you that David offers an ugly injustice. It's wrapped in justice, the guise of justice, but is ugly injustice. And then I think from this passage that is horrific, there are at least three things that we can learn. 
So moving into it, I'll say it again without question. This is an ugly passage. I know we just had Fall Fest, and afterwards it'd be nice if we could have something inspiring and uplifting and attractive. Well, no, not today. Instead, we have seven innocent sons who are senselessly taken and they are slaughtered for the sins of their father. And honestly, that idea is offensive. It should cause us to recoil and in all of our modern sensibilities, it just it, it makes us cringe. We don't understand it. It forces us. It must force us to ask the question, what good is there in such a story? Why is this here? What is the redemptive point of this? Well, even if the answers to that are not clear, we can be confident that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So you know what that means? You're not complete until you know this passage in all of its ugliness. So let us today focus our minds and prepare to wrestle with this wild beast. And we will squeeze it until treasures pop out. And there are treasures here. Look at verse 1 again. Now there was famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So in the days of Saul, I'm sorry, in the days of David, it simply just means that sometime within David's reign, again, not necessarily following the civil war of chapters 15 through 20, we just know that the the events of chapter 21 are sometime within David's reign. And I'd like to suggest that it's probably early on in David's reign when the memory of Saul's regime was far more potent. In those days, there was famine, famine that lasted three years, three years, which would have been absolutely devastating to Israel. Year after year, no food. And they don't have the means to import these kinds of provisions from outside of Israel. No, this was devastating to them, a desperate situation. And yet, the famine wasn't the real problem. That's just the symptom. The real problem behind the natural consequence is this divine providence of God. David understood that, that that what he's seeing in the land, this famine that grips the countryside, something is behind that, something with God. And so he knew enough to seek God, to seek his face, to come to some understanding of what was going on. And you have to ask, how long did David inquire of the Lord? A couple days? Was it a month or two? Or has it, has it been since the rains didn't come that very first season? Has David been seeking the Lord, laboring in prayer year after year? In the third year, God finally speaks to David. 
Now, if this is a direct conversation between David and Yahweh, which it does seem to indicate, then that likely means this happened earlier in David's reign before the events of Bathsheba. Again, three years of famine. So even uh, though David is a prophet king, though, though he is the Lord's anointed, though he is <clears throat> a man after God's own heart, he doesn't just say, Lord, what's this about? Answer. Right? It's not easy. He doesn't just get it like a simple download. No, the t- text is presenting this arduous, fervent seeking where David is enduring hardship, a desperate yearning to understand and know Know God's purposes. And if that's true for David, the anointed of the king, the man after God's own heart, then when we want to discern God's will, should we expect such simple, quick downloads from heaven or an arduous pursuit, yearning, striving after God? When David finally hears, he finally hears the famine is a consequence and that Saul polluted the land because he had put the Gibeonites to death. And there is much to dig through here. Verse 2 says, So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. The Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel. But the people of Israel promised to spare them. And to understand what's going on there, we need to go, to go back in Israel's history, back almost 400 years to the time of Joshua. And Joshua was leading Israel through the promised land in the conquest. And by divine command, he was driving out the, the wicked pagan nations that lived there as judgment. And the Gibeonites were a branch of the, one of these pagan inhabitants. And the Gibeonites knew. They saw it coming, right? They heard what had happened in Egypt. They heard that Israel had crossed the Red Sea, that as Israel approached the promised land, nations were falling. People groups were being defeated. The Gibeonites heard of this, and they became afraid. They knew they were on the chopping block. So they devise an elaborate scheme to deceive the people of Israel, to deceive Joshua. And it works. We read in Joshua chapter 9, so the men of Israel took some of the Gibeonites' provisions, like getting a payoff, so to speak, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. So the Gibeonites trick the people of Israel, trick Joshua into making this covenant with them that would spare them. God had said that he should be judged. And now because of their deceptions and because Israel did not seek counsel from the Lord, the Gibeonites live. And that line, they did not ask counsel from the Lord, has a terrible echo in our passage today. We'll get to that. For now, we must see, we must remember that though there's this covenant that's been made between the Gibeonites and the Israelites, the king of Israel, Saul, violated it and killed Gibeonites 
an account which is not recorded in our Bibles, but it is evident that he did kill a large number of Gibeonites. Saul did. Verse 2 says Saul killed the Gibeonites because he was zealous for Israel and Judah. Verse 5 says Saul tried to drive the Gibeonites out of the land. In other words, Saul's taking up the ancient conquest of Joshua while intentionally disregarding the covenant Joshua made. He's trying to be Joshua while breaking the oaths of Joshua. Saul violated the covenant and spilled innocent blood out of his own misguided religious fervor. What do we do? Out of our own misguided religious fervor. As a result, Israel is experiencing the consequences of that covenant disobedience, of that broken covenant. Listen, listen to this. One of the consequences for, or curses for covenant disobedience in Deuteronomy 28. And the heavens over your head shall be bronze, and the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven, dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. And this is what's happening in Israel. It describes a drought, but we know that famine follows drought. We need to ask, if Saul committed the sin, if he's the one who did it, And why are all the people suffering? Why all Israel caught up in the consequences of one man's sin? It's because blood or murder, unjustly spilled blood, pollutes the land, the promised land. God said in Numbers 35, If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death. Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land. And no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel." 2 Samuel 21, God is holy and perfect and righteous. He has chosen a people to dwell with in the the midst of, to be surrounded by, a people that's to be holy. Israel is to be holy. So if they live in righteousness, if if they live in that holiness, then blessing will flow out on the land. It would truly be a land flowing with milk and honey. But when they choose to live in wickedness, when they choose injustice, then the land will become cursed. And the sky like bronze and the ground like iron. This is the covenantal arrangement that was made on Sinai between Yahweh and Israel. The shedding of innocent Gibeonite blood at the hand of Saul polluted the land. God would not abide by it, and so famine was the covenantal consequence until atonement could be made. So David understands all of that. 
He has some knowledge of all of these elements. He wants to find a way to atone for this innocent blood that's been spilled, for a covenant that's been broken. And so to find out what to do, he goes to those who have been offended. He's, he goes to the Gibeonites. Stop. What? He goes to the Gibeonites? Why? Why does David go to them? If there's blood guilt, why doesn't he ask God what must be done to remove this sin? He's been seeking the Lord so fervently for so long. Why does he stop here? We don't know. He goes to the Gibeonites and he seeks their counsel. Verse 3. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And how may I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house, neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he, David, said, What do you say that I shall do for you? So after living for Israel for some 400 years now, the Gibeonites understand Mosaic law. As we saw in Numbers 35, when I read that passage, a ransom for a murderer is unlawful. A payoff, an out-of-court settlement, unlawful. Furthermore, it wouldn't satisfy their hunger for justice. They wanted justice, and gold and silver wasn't going to bring them justice, so they're not going to accept any of that money. What they want is implied in what they say to David, neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. What would you do if you heard those words? What? Saul is dead and you want me to kill somebody else? You want more? Money's not going to satisfy these Gibeonites. Only blood will satisfy them. They want eye for an eye. They want tooth for tooth. They want blood for blood. They want Israelites for Gibeonites. But these Gibeonites, they're not able to spill Israelite blood without bringing disaster upon themselves, without themselves becoming breakers of that covenant. And so what's the obvious implication? If they can't do it, David can. Because David is king. Because David, in many ways, is the arbiter of life and death in Israel as its highest judge. He can decide who lives and who dies, who is guilty and who is innocent. And so understanding this, that that's what the Gibeonites are saying, David asks a question that changes the entire tenor of the passage. He asks the Gibeonites, who are not of the people of God, what do you want me to do for you? And now this situation that was urgent mutates into something ugly and horrific. They said to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, 
I will give them. If you've been around Emmanuel for any length of time, you probably know that some numbers have symbolic value, as does the number seven. Seven being a number of fullness, of completeness, of sufficiency. And so since Saul is already dead, the Gibeonites deem that the blood of seven of his sons will be sufficient. And they're not necessarily demanding literal sons. It could just be any descendant of Saul. They'll take him. Seven. And these seven will be hung before the Lord, the Gibeonites say, in sight of the Lord, to appease the Lord. You hear that. Hopefully knowing a little bit about the heart of God and there should be alarm bells going off in your mind. No. No, David. This is not how we appease God. This is not what he wants. But the king of Israel, the Lord's anointed, the man after God's own heart, he says, I will give them. I will give them. I will sacrifice these seven sons for the sins of their father. And the implication? David thinks that killing these seven sons will appease the Lord. Has he not deviated so far from the will of God at this point? He thinks that this will help the famine to relent. Again, he sought the counsel of God so fervently about the famine, about the the cause of the famine. Why does he not now seek the Lord over this request? Why doesn't he bring this before God and say, is this what you want? Will this really please you? He doesn't. And he doesn't seem to understand the will of God or he's blinded or it's cl- something's clouded in his heart and he's not, he's not seeing clearly. So instead of seeking the Lord regarding these matters of justice, he instead relies on human understandings of justice. And what he does is a direct violation of the commands of God. Deuteronomy 24:16 Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers each one shall be put to death for his own sin And David does not pray no longer is he seeking the face of the Lord there is only the counsel of the Gibeonites and David's words I will give them But the king spared Mephibosheth, in verse 7. The son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath the Lord of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Mirab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Mahalathite. 
And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites. And they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first day of harvest, at the beginning of the barley harvest. Just a brief note. The Barzillai here is not the same Barzillai that we saw last week in chapter 19. So back in his youth, David made a covenant with Jonathan. And we saw this covenant when we studied those passages. They promised to be loyal to one another, David and Jonathan. They promised to, to safeguard each other's offspring and not harm them nor cut them off. And we saw David generously, profoundly, beautifully uphold this covenant to Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. In chapter 9 of 2 Samuel, and he, David brings Mephibosheth into his household and lets him sit at his own table every day, making him like one of his own sons. Beautiful picture. And so to continue to uphold this covenant that David made to Jonathan, he now does not deliver Mephibosheth, the same Mephibosheth, into the hands of the Gibeonites. So see this. Saul violates covenant and his descendants die. David keeps covenant and Mephibosheth is spared. But there is another Mephibosheth in this passage. And that Mephibosheth is taken. One Mephibosheth spared, another taken. One in place of the other. This Mephibosheth is the son of Saul by the concubine Rizpah. His brother's taken too, and, and these are sons of Saul. And then five grandsons of Saul are taken. Imagine this. Can you imagine this? Like, close your eyes and think about it. David's men show up at Rizpah's home, this mother's home. We're here for your boys. They're going to the gallows. They die for the sins of their father. Well, what would you do? What would you do if they came to you? And by David's orders, they are taken. They're given to the Gibeonites. And they're taken up some unnamed mountain. And they're executed. Sons and grandsons that had nothing to do, presumably, with the, son, with the sins of Saul. And now, year after year, like the tolling of a bell, when the barley's brought in, all Israel would remember the sad injustice that befell the seven sons of Saul. How profoundly mournful and tragic, horrific. And though it's impossible, I think, for us to really understand the horror of that, it's easy to understand why Rizpah is so grieved by such tremendous sorrow. Look, look at this again, verse 10. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock. From the beginning of the harvest until the rain fell upon them from the heavens. She did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told what Rizpah had done, 
the daughter of Ai, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul, the bones of his son Jonathan from the main of Jabeth Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Beth Shan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul and Gilboa. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan. And he gathered the bones of those who were hanged. And he buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin and Zelah, in the tomb of Kish, his father. And he did all the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. So this mother, this broken mother, takes some sackcloth, the cloth of mourning, of sorrow. She spreads it on the ground. Maybe she makes some crude tent out of it. And there on the hill, there on the hill, she guards the bodies of her boys. She beats back the beasts and she chases away the hungry vultures. And every day for four to six months, her mourning is pierced by the sights and smells of love decomposing. And David eventually hears of what Rizpah's doing, what she's been doing, this powerful display of love and grief, and he has moved to, to compassion. And so he, he removes those bones from where they hang, he collects the bones of Saul and Jonathan, and he respectfully lays them to rest with the bones of their ancestors. And it is a gentleness from David, <laughs> a gentleness a little too late. Do you remember when he wanted gentleness for his son? And then as the dirt is gathered over those bones, the clouds gather over the promised land. And they break, and the famine breaks. How strange that the famine ends, not when the seven sons are killed, but when their bones are buried. It's the only honorable thing in this entire passage. The only honorable thing. A tiny little glimmer of righteousness and the famine breaks. Maybe that's hopeful for you when you feel like there's only a tiny little glimmer of righteousness in your heart. By the grace of God. So you come to verse 14, where the narrative ends, and no one is rescued. Once again, David's moral character is called into question. Though the famine is broken, which is just a tiny bit of good news, you're left with this heavy flood of sadness at the end of it all, and it's unavoidable that there is no happy ending. It just stops. And you're left realizing that this passage, 2 Samuel 21, is written to be sad. It's written so that you will recoil. It's meant to be ugly. It's meant to be solemn. And therefore, we're meant to be taught by something that is ugly. 
Let me suggest that there are three lessons, three treasures buried in this graveyard. First, and, and I will say this, this seems so distant from us, so foreign, so strange, but I'm going to show you that we are profoundly touched by this passage, every one of us. So first, we people of faith, we followers of Christ, we are not to run away from that which is ugly or grotesque in Scripture. The reason that moral failures and, and suffering and laments are in the Bible is because we are touched by these same hard realities, each one of us. Whether it be from around us or bubbling up from within us, we are touched by this ugliness. And God is unafraid of how ugly things get with his people. This passage is written to make us recoil. So recoil. Recoil. See its ugliness. And then recognize that there are many parts within each one of us that if they were to be put in black and white on the pages in front of the people in this church, there would be much recoiling. We all have parts that deserve recoiling. The land was polluted. This passage is polluted. We are polluted. And we cannot be afraid of that reality, for it is the solemn truth. The second thing, lesson, I think, that we can derive from this passage is that this text is showing us David's inadequate attempts at human justice in a sin-disordered world. His attempts at human justice in a sin-disordered world. And it's an abhorrent picture that we get in 2 Samuel 21, but it's, it's not very far away from our everyday experience. All around us every day in the news are human attempts at justice in a sin-disordered world. And so in the name of justice, the unborn are disassembled in the womb. And in the name of justice, children mutilate their bodies so that they can be accepted. And in the name of justice, dot, dot, dot. Meanwhile, the face of the Lord is not sought. No one considers the king who truly reigns over this world. And they don't think about that no sin goes unnoticed, that a day of wrath approaches, and that every man and woman will one day have to give account. One day, true everlasting justice will be dispensed. And this world doesn't care at all. So how can justice truly be found absent of the king of all kings without knowledge of his holy will? So divorced from the will of God, it can't be. Justice cannot be found. We see that so clearly in this passage. All you're left with are these ugly, horrific attempts at justice. And we see their corpses swinging from Capitol Hill, from Hollywood Hills, 
from whatever hills of justice that this world tries to erect. Sad attempts. And that's what we get when we trust in the counsel of those who do not belong to the people of God. The third lesson I think we can get. David's deeply troubling attempt at justice. It leaves us feeling his inadequacy. He's not the man that that we or I want him to be. I wish there was a way to rescue David out of this passage. He has great moments. He has these awesome moments. And then there are these breathtaking disasters. David is inadequate. His justice is inadequate. So let's look with horror at those seven corpses hanging from some Gibeonite hill and press on. On to another hill. Up Golgotha to Calvary where we will find there, there we will find the will of God hanging from a tree. David never should have sought the counsel of the Gibeonites. It's where everything went wrong. They don't know how to deal with sin. The way they want justice is not how God deals with sin, is not how God dispenses justice. God deals with sin not through human sacrifice, but through the provision of a substitute. That's how God deals with sin. All those animal sacrifices that existed for so many hundreds of years pointed to that one great final atoning sacrifice, substitutionary atonement. David's inadequacy to deliver justice is meant to point us to the greater son, to the king of all kings, the prince of peace, Jesus Christ, where God provides himself, born of a woman, the greatest descendant of David, perfect and spotless, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And because God is faithful and loving and merciful, and because his promises will never fail, We are the Mephibosheth that was spared, and he is the Mephibosheth that was taken. And year after year, we remember it. The same time that the barley is gathered in at the Passover, where Christ was hung on that tree in our place. It is true. It is true, and you must believe from Romans 5. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received 
reconciliation. Atonement has been made. Now, all of your ugly parts, my ugly parts, those hidden sins that would cause anyone here to recoil, we carry them up that hill to the cross and we hang them there, crucified. Recoil and then turn away and follow Jesus. Forgiven, free, reconciled unto God for his everlasting glory and your everlasting life. Father, we praise you that even in the darkest places, your glory is not diminished. The light of the world is brilliant, brilliant, even there. Where sin increases, so also does grace. How awesome is your grace, Father. We thank you that you have rescued us rescued us from your wrath, from the condemnation our sins deserved, and given to us the life and righteousness of Christ our King. It is him we worship, it is him we praise, it is his name that we pray. Amen.